This morning's scripture reading comes from Romans chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 to 8. Next week we will begin our fall teaching series where we're going to look at the last two chapters of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. But this morning I want to mark the changing of the seasons by looking at this text from from Romans because it's a text that's about the church. We've been talking about that. We've been singing about that. We use that as our confession of faith, that subject. And I want to look at that this morning because it's important to remind ourselves as we enter into this new season, the start of the school year, even those who don't, aren't connected to a school calendar in any kind of formal way, recognize the transition from summer into fall as a, a meaningful movement. So it's a good time to sort of remind ourselves, what are we and why are we here together? It's a timely question and we're going to examine it from this text in Romans. It's Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Let me invite you to stand if you're able as I read this. And when I'm done, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying thanks be to God. Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ." and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So I told you not everyone is connected to a school environment, but let's begin with a nod to our students out there who started English class this week. Let me give you a word that you should be very aware of and that you need to know for English class because it's important in how you interpret what you read. It's the word metaphor. Have you ever heard the word metaphor? It's an important word to know. It's a very important word to know when you're studying the Bible, in fact. It's a good SAT word, but it's an even more important word to know when we approach the Scripture because it helps us understand how God often communicates truths about Himself to us. According to Dictionary.com, a metaphor is a figure of speech in which a term or phrase is applied to something to which it is not literally applicable in order to suggest a resemblance. I'll say that again. It's a figure of speech or a term or a phrase that is applied to something that is not, to which it is not literally applicable in order to suggest a resemblance. In other words, it's a word that's used to help you explain or understand the meaning of another word. For example, take the hymn that we often sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, the great first line of that hymn from Martin Luther. Now, of course, God is not literally a fortress. He's not a castle somewhere. He's not a castle-like formation of brick or stone or anything like that. But the metaphor of a fortress is a good one because when we read the Bible, we learn that God is strong like a fortress. He's someone to whom we can run in times of danger like a fortress. He protects His people from His enemies 
like a fortress. It's a metaphor. And the Bible is filled with all kinds of language like that that helps us understand theological truth by using images and things to which we can relate in, in everyday life. They help us understand what could otherwise be abstract concepts or, or ideas. And this is especially true for the church because throughout the Bible there are a number of metaphors that are used to tell us what the church is like. Now this morning we're just going to look at one of them. And, then, and there's a lot of things that you can study from the first eight verses of Romans chapter 12, but I want to zero in on one, and that is this image, this metaphor of the church as a body. You saw it in verse, verses 4 and 5. That's where I want to focus in. The church is described as a body like a human body. So there's three observations to make, I think. Not very complicated, these three observations. They're printed in your bulletin, but you could follow along pretty easily with the three observations even without that. Observation number one, the church is a body. And we're saying metaphorically, not literally, but the church is a body. Number two, the body is sick. Kind of continuing the metaphor. You get the theme, body, sick body. Third, Jesus heals the body. Those are the three points. Like I said, not very complicated, but absolutely foundational for what we do and why we're here. First point, the church is a body. Go back, do some research, and you'll read a number of theories as to why Paul might have picked this metaphor of a body. Some say that Paul spent so much time with Luke. Remember the guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke? Luke was a physician, an early physician at the, at the, at the time in the ancient world. And Paul, some say, spent so much time with Luke that he became fascinated with the human body. Maybe that's why. Or maybe he picked the body because there were a lot of heresies existing in the early church about the body and what the body was for. And Paul kind of said, you know what, you want to talk about the body? Let's do this. Let's, let's use the body as an image. Or maybe, while the first two might be reasonable explanations, the simplest, perhaps the most likely explanation that Paul used the metaphor of a body for speaking of the church is just simply it's a really good metaphor because the proper functioning of a human body is very similar to the proper functioning of a, of a church. For example, there are a couple of key characteristics of the church that are illustrated really well by talking about it as a, as a body. For example, a body has a head. Right? You have a head, I have a head, we have heads. What's the head do? What happens in the head? That's where the brain is. And the, the head controls the direction of our bodies, sets the priorities, tells the rest of the body what it's, what it's going to do, ensures that everything is all working in, in coordination. Well, the church has a head too. Not a, not a pastor, not a bishop, not a pope. No, the head of the church is, is Jesus. We see hints of that here in, in Romans 12 when it says in verse 1 that we're we're subject to God when it says in verse 5 that we form the body in Christ. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But, but it's made very clear that the church has a head, and that head is Jesus in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. That's where he write, writes that God placed all things under his feet, that is under the feet of Jesus, and he appointed him, that is Jesus, to be the head, see, there it is, to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So you see, Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians what he's assuming here in Romans chapter 12. The church is a body. The church has a head of that body, and that head is Jesus Christ. Now, what difference does that make? Well, it makes a big difference. Back in 1980, or in the 1980s at least, there was a study done by a researcher named Robert Bella, and it was published under the title, The Habits of the Heart, Individualism and Commitment in American Life. The Habits of the Heart, Individualism and Commitment in the American Life. And in the book, 
Bella says that America had been infected with a, a virulent virus. Interesting use of the term virus. We're talking about a body, right? America had been infected with a virus and that he called that virus radical individualism. This is back in the 1980s. In one interview with a woman named Sheila, Bella relates that she described herself as being very religious. And so he asked her, what's your religion? And she said, well, I call my religion Sheilaism. Her name was Sheila. I call my religion Sheilaism. She answered, it's just my own little voice. That's what I listen to. But if Jesus is the head of the church, then Sheilaism, which is just the whims of any particular individual, is invalid. If Jesus is the head of the church, then Tom, Dick, and Harryism, or the collective wisdom of a bunch of individuals, is also invalid. Right? So the church cannot be led by any one individual. That would be Sheilaism. It can't even be led ultimately by a group of us, Tom, Dick, and Harryism. That's not Robert Bella's term, that's mine. It has to only ultimately be led by its one head, and that is Jesus Christ. He sets the priorities. He tells the church what it ought to do, what it ought to be about, and he ensures that everything is coordinated. That's the first thing about a body. Now, the second thing about a body is a body is cared for. We take care of our bodies, at least we ought to, when we're functioning correctly. And in fact, when, when someone is not caring for their body, we take that as some sort of a mark that something is wrong in their, in their lives. But when things are appropriately we take care of our bodies we dress them we adorn them we eat and sleep so that we can we can function well the church is cared for as well it's adorned with gifts that's what we see in romans 12 verse 6 we have different gifts according to the grace that's been given to us and then it goes on to list some of them according to the grace given given to us it means that jesus cares for the different parts of the body in the most fitting way for that part in other words if god has tasked you with being a part of the church that serves others, then he's going to give you the resources, emotionally, perhaps materially, to be able to serve others. Or to put it another completely, you know, a different way, sticking with the body kind of image, if you're a wrist, you'll get a watch, right? If you're an ear, you'll get an earring. If you're a wrist, you won't get the earring, perhaps. And if you're an ear, then you won't get the watch. This is the strobe effect, I don't know if it's possible to turn the, there we go. I'm not subject to migraine, but I could be. All right. Um, it's not, for those of you who are, so it's, we're not one of those, those churches that kind of, the smoke isn't next, if you're, if you're wondering. Um, we see the same theme in Ephesians 4. Paul says in Ephesians 4 that he gave some to be apostles, he gave some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. Why? Why did he, why did he do all this? He did it so that we can each, according to our own gifts, serve one another. So the body has a head. The body is cared for appropriately. But perhaps the best reason why Paul compares the church to a body is that in the body, all the parts work together. That's the intention. Back to Romans 12. Look at verses 4 and 6. For as in one body we have many members, the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Right? Each, each part of the body has a different function, and each function is required to work with one another in order for the church to work the way that it ought to. And when it happens, it's a beautiful thing to, to watch. You can see it. Just imagine in the context of this church, right? Someone that you meet 
you know, maybe at school, kids, you meet somebody at school, you invite them to come to a movie night that we have here at the church. And when they come with their parents, they meet somebody and else who's here, and that person's really, really nice. And so they go home and they see that's you know, interesting. They go to our website and they watch a recording of our service on YouTube or something like that. And then they visit the next week to a, to a worship service. And, and their youngest child maybe is cared for in nursery by one of the volunteers that so faithfully serves in nursery. And, and everyone who comes meet other people who are here, and they're encouraged by the music, and they're challenged by the preaching, and they get involved in a a small group, whether it's a men's Bible study on Wednesday morning or a community group that meets on Sunday night and, and, and they deepen relationships with other people here in D.C. Multiple ministries, dozens of people involved in potentially hundreds of ways to introduce and connect a family to the body of Christ. That's how it works. That's how it can look here at Calvary. Each of us doing our job in our way, some outwardly visible, some behind the scenes, but everyone absolutely essential. That's all under point number one. The church is a body. There's lots of reasons why that is a good metaphor for the church. But you know, there is a problem, and that's point number two. The body is sick. You don't have to spend that much time around churches to realize that the body does not always follow the direction of its head, doesn't always work together well, that doesn't always function the way that it's supposed to. In fact, often ends up attacking itself. I don't know if you ever had this experience. My Sometimes I, you know, would have my, uh, you know, one of my parents or somebody, and they were just kind of joking around, and they, you know, take my hand when I was a little kid, and they're like, "Why, why are you hitting yourself?" You know, and they're like doing it. It's like, "Dad, you're doing it. I'm not doing it, right?" But that's kind of what the church often is doing to itself. It's like we're just atta- we're like we're like hitting ourselves, and it's silly. And a little child recognizes that it's silly, but yet it happens all the time. And it happens when the church forgets its main purpose and spends much too much time on petty things. A while back, I read about a church in, in Louisiana, this is a true story, that has a roof that is one half with red shingles and one half with green shingles because the members could not agree on what color shingles to get. Seriously, it almost caused a church split. It actually happened. Or sometimes it happens when we fail to do simple things like just graciously give to one another the benefit of the doubt. Or sometimes it happens when there's a spirit of of discontentment, sort of a grass is always greener kind of an attitude. And it can happen happen to the best of churches. It can happen to the best of preachers. Jonathan Edwards, arguably the, the, one of the greatest American philosophers and theologians of history, was dismissed by the church that he had served for over 25 years. They thought that he wasn't measuring up. It happens, and it happens all the time today across the country when people transfer their consumer mentality that they have about other things, about grocery shopping or you know, what, to, what to buy. They transfer that same mentality to the church, and they, they hop churches like they do movie theaters or grocery stores. Now, whatever the reason for the conflict, Think about this in terms of the body metaphor that we've been using. What is that condition called in a human body when some of the body's cells begin to deviate from their intended function and instead of working together, actually begin to attack one another? What do we call that when that happens in the body? Cancer. We call that cancer. The body is sick and its own worst enemy is us. That's point number two. Now, thankfully though, Jesus has something to say about that. The head doesn't just passively kind of sit by idly and watch as the body attacks and destroys itself. Look back at at Romans 12. I want you to notice something. Look at verses 1 to 3. See how he rattles off these things that if we only did them, 
would cure what's wrong for the church. If we only did these things, verses 1 to 3. Verse 1, if we live lives dedicating to serving God as the first priority. Verse 2, if we don't do the things the way the world does them. And in verse 3, we don't think too much of ourselves in the way that we do things. If we just did those things, then everything would work fine. That would be great. And they're all great things. But what I want us to see is that God is not asking us to love the church, serve the church, be the church out of our own strength because the instructions are clear enough. The problem is we can't do it, have not been able to do it, will not be able to do it out of our own strength. Because while God is asking for a sacrifice of a human body here in verse 1, did you see that? Present yourself as a sacrifice. But what kind of sacrifice? A living sacrifice. Not a bloody sacrifice. That's because the bloody sacrifice has already been made. That's what Jesus did. That's what we celebrate here in the Lord's table in just a minute. The bloody sacrifice, His body for ours, so that we, in Him, might be raised and perfected. In Him. That's the key. Look again at verse 5. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. How do the many backgrounds, the many, many backgrounds, many opinions, many sins, how do they form one body? They do it through their union with Christ. By being united to Him in His death, by being united to Him in His resurrection. That's what it means to be in Christ. Now, do you see what this means for the functioning of the body? At least three things it means. Three implications of this fact that we are in Christ. The first implication, being in Christ, means that we are connected with one another in a family relationship because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We are in a family relationship with one another. Right? In other words, if I'm related to Jesus, if I'm an adopted son of God because of what Jesus has done, and if you're related to Jesus, if we're both related to Jesus, then guess what? We're related to one another. You're my brother you're my sister. And so I then have infinitely more in common with you in Christ than I can ever have with someone who is not in Christ. When I was in college at the University of Delaware, and for several years after that, the big company in Wilmington, Delaware, was not, as it had historically been, was not DuPont. The big company, the thriving company, the company of the new age was MBNA. MBNA was a credit card company, and they pioneered and dominated affinity marketing in credit cards, connecting people who had common interests, common hobbies, common associations, and they would make credit cards for them. Now, there were the, these were the first folks to do kind of branding in this kind of way. Now, so if you were a Yankees fan, you'd get a Yankees credit card so that you'd connect with all the other Yankees people. If you were a Rutgers grad, you'd get a Rutgers card, and, and you could be connected with all other you know, Rutgers alumni. This is, this is pioneered by MBNA, connected by affinity. Well, being in Christ means that you have the ultimate affinity. It doesn't mean that you, can, that you forget the other natural affinities of your life, where you went to school, what sports teams you root for, or even what nation you're from, or what ethnic group you belong to. You don't forget those things. And those things in their own way can still be very, very important, but those things all come under and are subject to an ultimate affinity, an ultimate connection that you now have in Jesus Christ. My ultimate affinity is the affinity that I have in Him. So what that means is that me, you know, sort of your average conservative white person with a collared shirt, a proper suburban nuclear family upbringing and a college education, me, it means that I actually have far more in common 
with a tattooed, pierced high school dropout from the inner city if that person is following Jesus too, because that person is my brother. It means that I have far more in common with a subsistence farmer in a small village on the other side of the world than I do with anyone else because that person is my brother. Far more in common with them than I do with anyone at a reunion of finance professionals for Sunoco or a tailgate for the alumni of the business school at the University of Delaware. That truth, if we believe it, can be to a watching world an absolutely amazing witness of the truth of what the body of Christ is, a truth and a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to a world which scratches its head because we are able to go back to a common history and because we have shared a common sacrifice. Tying a couple of themes together, I don't know if you remember, but on September 12th of 2001, the day after the attacks here in the United States, the Queen of England did something that was absolutely unprecedented in British history, and that the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace commanded that the national anthem of the United States be played. Think about the irony of that. Not only the anthem of another sovereign nation, but a nation that had broken away from the British Empire in armed conflict, playing a song that was written during an armed conflict between those two nations. The body of humanity had been fighting with one another. And yet, what bound, what bound the two nations together? Well, shared history. What bound the two nations together by the time we get to 2001? A lot of shared sacrifice through the 20th century of the two nations dying together. That's what we are, the church. That's an imperfect metaphor, but it is a reminder. Why do we have more in common with one another? Because in Jesus Christ, we share a common history, a common story, and we share a common sacrifice. Being in Christ also means that we have charitable attitudes towards other people. We overlook offense. We confront grace with charity, not because other people in the body of Christ are without sin, but because they're in, they're in Christ. Now, finally, being in Christ also means that when we put our faith and trust in what Jesus has done, we're uniting with Him in such a way that everything that Jesus has, aside from His, his his God-defining qualities, but everything that He has that can be communicated and transferred to us is now ours as well. When we're in Christ, the riches of the inheritance that He is able to share with His family, He does freely, and it's ours. We're going to do a review of Ephesians next week before we jump into the details of Ephesians 5 and 6 for the rest of the fall. And the main point the entire main point at the very beginning of the, of, of the letter to the Ephesians is this amazing reality, like, like it says in verse 3 of chapter 1 of Ephesians, the amazing reality that the, that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every blessing is ours. And we don't just see it in Ephesians, we see it all over Paul's letters. Ephesians 1.11, we are chosen in Christ. Ephesians 1.7, we are redeemed and forgiven in Christ. Romans 8.1, we are freed from the threat of condemnation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we are a new creation in Christ. Philippians 4.19, God has promised to supply all our needs in Christ. Colossians 1.28, we will be presented ultimately to God as perfect in Christ. That's what is yours individually personally, it is what is ours 
corporately. And the one glorious thing that Paul adds to that doctrine here in Romans chapter 12, verse 5, is that we do experience those things together. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. It is not just an individual thing. We, together, as a body, as a church, are in Christ. Redeemed together, forgiven together, provided for together, presented as perfect to God together. This is not just a personal journey. We travel together. Now, as we conclude, let me acknowledge how sometimes it's easy to grasp how the universal church can be made perfect. Okay, I get that. But it's harder to see sometimes in the midst of your own local church. And I say this knowing and believing about this church. There's, there's, no, there's nothing behind the scenes. There's no major conflict or anything like that here. But it is still harder to see in a local community. Because in your local community, you know the problems. Right? You, you know the people. And sometimes those people, uh, they irritate you. I don't know. I mean, before I came to Calvary, I had been involved, I had been involved in enough other churches to know that those kinds of things exist everywhere. And since I've been on staff here, I do have a window into the lives and the relationships of people here. I know they're not all perfect, but the gospel in action through the body of Christ is here. And I've seen it here before I even got here. I saw it in the way that I, in the, in the care of the, of, of the process of, of talking to me before I even got here. I saw it in the care of a Sunday school teacher who sent a card to my then four-year-old daughter before she had even met her. I saw it in the founding member of the congregation that I got to know who I don't think ever in the years before she passed away was able to attend here services in person, but who every time I got together told me that she prayed for me and my family and I believed her. I've seen it in the care that I witness every week in the people of this church when they need rides to doctor's appointments, meals in the midst of illness, encouragement in the midst of grief. I saw it in the way that we stuck together through COVID and we loved each other through differences and through distance. And I see it in the way that you give sacrificially of your time and your resources so that we can not only be effective encouragers of one another here, but so that we can do outreach into our community. I see the body of Christ here at Calvary. That's the starting point. That's the foundation for us this fall. And it is embedded in the character and in the history of this church. I was looking through a filing cabinet earlier this week. And I came across um, this. It's, um, it's a bulletin from September of 1962. This church. September of 1962. That's 60 years ago. Now there's lots of things that are different about this church. We had fewer members then. We were part of a different denomination. We were in a different building our financial accounts i looked them up were not as not as much as they as they are today but those things attendance buildings affiliations budgets they don't make a church a church and if you look closely at this bulletin from 1962 the um the scripture reading of the day was acts chapter 4 starting with verse 32 you know what acts chapter 4 starting at verse 32 says The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Well, there you go. 
That's as true as it was 60 years ago, as it was 2,000 years ago when it was first written. The people of God, united in one heart and soul, caring for the needs of one another and proclaiming the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the mission of the church, the body of Christ. And like Paul says in, in Corinthians, each one of us is a part of that. Let's pray. Lord, I'm astonished that you allow your church to be the institution by which you proclaim the good news of what you have done. I'm astonished because while I'm in the church and I know how poorly I live these things out that we've talked about, but Lord, we pray that you would forgive our failings and encourage us with your mission and strengthen us to be your servants through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.